0: recovery elevator episode 401
1: you know when i'm sober i'm the best mom when i'm drunk it's like all bets are off only thing i love
0: is alcohol uh like this yeah that should work mix down (laughs) yeah keep going yo yo mix down three four yo yo wiki wiki three mix down there we go seven eight Wiki Wiki, down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki Wiki, down. There we go. Three, Welcome four. to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Jen. She's 52 years old from Connecticut and took her last drink on March 20th, 2022. Great job, Jen. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe chat hosts. You guys do such a great job. Thank you. And before we get any further in this episode, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE.
2: When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe RE almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community People all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community. You get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched. You can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there.
0: Okay, let's get started, team. In episode 391, I asked listeners what they wanted to hear. Now, a gentleman named Jeff L. with five years alcohol free time. That's what's up, Jeff. Great job. He said he wanted to hear from past guests, some sort of uh, where are they now? And I'm also curious. So I threw that out a couple episodes ago, and here we are. This first one is an update from Chloe. She says, I was interviewed on episode 327 when I was about eight months sober. I'm now two and a quarter years sober. In my interview, I said I was training for a marathon and switching careers. I ran the marathon and I'm about to start training for another one. I'm 18 months into retraining to be a therapist with another 18 months to go. I've stayed sober, but it has been tough sometimes. In my interview, I was very upbeat and on the pink cloud of early sobriety. Staying in recovery for the long haul is hard for me, but 100 times better than drinking. I'm slowly working on my mental health issues that fueled my addiction, and other addictions keep popping up. I find myself thinking if it was only just about the drinking. (laughs) I hear you there, Chloe. Thank you so much for the update. This next one is from Hannah. She was on episode 280. She says, my episode was in July 2020. At the time of the recording, I was about 60 days into my journey after an eight-month relapse. I can now say I'm 881 days sober. Hell yeah, Hannah. She says, I definitely still have my ups and downs, and I'm learning how to deal with life and long-term sobriety. But the connections through Cafe RE have been amazing and truly special for me. I have left a relationship and a job that no longer suited me during this journey. And while hard, I stayed sober and came out stronger on the other end. I can honestly say I've learned to like and love myself. Something I'm not sure I could say a few years ago. Sobriety is hard work, but definitely worth it. Thank you, Hannah. This next one is from Fish, episode 308. He says, 2021 was unreal for me. From July through October 2021, the area I lived in and my employer's lands, were severely impacted by wildfire from July 13th through September 5th to 2021. I evac four times, was scared for my life on multiple occasions, saw things I can't wash from my memory and managed my employees and surroundings in the aftermath. On top of all this, my work environment became tense. And by November, 2021, I knew I would leave my job. So in August, I resigned and moved from rural Northeast California to Reno, Nevada. I joined a small consulting firm while also opening my own and began accepting work at both. With my new arrangements, I began swimming again, my lifelong sport, after a four-year hiatus. For me, there's nothing like washing your brain in a box of water. As you might surmise, I had plenty of reasons to drink. Remarkably, I didn't have the urge. I kept listening to Odette, Chris, Paul, and their guests. They are rock stars, and I even burned more ships. I wrote, got lost in my guitar, played the tape forward, and persevered. So as I close in on 1,000 days alcohol-free, I want to thank all of you for your support. Big time, Fish. Thank you for the update. This next one comes from Randy R., episode 129 and 358. He says, I am right here in Café R.E., where I have been since I began my journey in 2016. Can't believe six years of sobriety is on the horizon for me and that you, Paul, just celebrated eight years. It has been truly amazing to see the RE community grow organically through the years. It was such an honor being able to celebrate my five-year mark last December by coming back on the podcast with Chris hosting this time. Life continues to be amazing in recovery, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I wish everyone in the community would attend the chats, at least one. They continue to be one of the biggest tools in my recovery toolkit. You are the man, Randy. Thank you so much for the update. This next one's from Brad S. Episode 217. He says, Since my interview, I am doing well. Paul mentioned that the adversity that I was going through during my interview would turn out to be a good thing. And it has. Life has moved forward, and I'm happy to have a little more than four years of sobriety. Professionally, I've made a couple of career change, and to be honest, I have learned a lot. I have been fortunate to grow a lot. I'm still looking for my thing in life, but have an amazing wife and child that keep me grounded and grateful. I love the Ari community and hope to someday meet you all in person. Thank you, Brad. Great stuff. This next one's from Bobby M. Episode 324. She says, my alcohol-free journey started with the Ari trip to Asia. I haven't drank since a few weeks before that trip. I learned from the folks in this community on Paul that alcohol is shit and my life is much better without it. Since Asia, I have participated as a guest on the podcast, been to meetups and more retreats with the Ari family. This community impacts my life daily with all that I have learned and the wonderful people I have met. Thank you, Ari family and Paul. Great job, Bobby. Thank you for the update. This next one is from David L. Episode 142. I had just attended the first Bozeman retreat and I was basking in its afterglow. I was pretty happy with my interview and appreciated the opportunity to get outside my comfort zone and share this story that I had bottled up for so long. Five years later, I have learned fully that sobriety is not a straight line. I've had many day ones since my interview, but those days have been significantly reduced each year. I'm proud to say I have 99% sober days over the past three years. More importantly, I'm so much more in tune with the notion of acceptance, step one, and remind myself daily to accept the things I cannot change, which of course means I need to constantly identify the things that I cannot change. And that work has made all the difference. I still listen to the podcast weekly, as that is the foundation of which all Recovery Elevators built. I'm still an active member of Cafe RE, and recently attended the Bozeman Retreat and felt all the feels again. Thank you, Paul and the RE team for your role in my life. Peace. Thank you, Dave. Great job, my man. All right, this one's from Jan, episode 353. I now have 593 days sober, and I'm a much better and happier person. It's slow progress, but not only am I happier, but my son is thrilled that I'm alcohol-free. I basically go to meetings whenever I can, which is a lot lately. I went to Atlanta for an RE meetup, which was fabulous, and have made new friends along the way. I talk with my friend Sandy every day by Marco Polo, and we roomed in Atlanta as well. I have planned two meetups, which were small, but a lot of fun. I'm in a WhatsApp group from the East Coast and the Washington, D.C. area. I also go hiking with my sober friend Rick, or we go to dinner. I absolutely wouldn't have stayed sober without Cafe RE. I wasn't paid to say this. Thank you, Jan. I absolutely love this group of people and have made a bunch of new friends. Finally, there's a place for me to go where I feel loved and appreciated. Great job, Jan. This next update is from Patrick, episode 248 when he had 10 months. He said, my last drink of alcohol was some three and a half years ago, but I've been practicing recovery for most of my adult life. During the previous three years, I have worked closely with Recovery Elevator, planning and co-teaching many of the courses. Being part of Recovery Elevator and experiencing a sense of belonging with our community has been a blessing. For the most part, I practice letting go. What I mean by that is this. I'm not looking for the next best thing, a quick fix, or some magic spell that will bring about happiness. For me, happiness is about letting go of that which causes suffering. Patrick, thank you for the update. This next one is from Tom T, episode 270. He says, 1308 days ago, I joined Cafe RE and I'm still enjoying the encouragement, non judgmental support, and accountability of the RE community. I consider myself a non drinker. Not a person in recovery or someone trying not to drink, but truly a non drinker. Having a no matter what attitude removes all the mental gymnastics. Should I or shouldn't I? Why not? Do I really have an issue with alcohol? And I find abstinence at this time to be freeing and easy. I'm also very self-aware and understand that I have no interest in being a casual drinker, but returning to daily drink here would have many, many detrimental effects. All of my friends, with the exception of one or two, are present or past cafe members. I travel with them. I travel to see them. I connect with a great number of them on a daily basis, and they are an integral part of my daily life. They are family, and they are not separate from my actual family. They know my family members, and my family members know them and know how important they are in my life. I've questioned whether I need Cafe RE to continue my AF life, but quickly realized I truly enjoy being a part of people's journeys and having the ability to encourage and support them in any small way. Tom T, the mayor, we are so glad to have you. Thank you for the update, Tom. This one is from Lowe, episode 80. I've been listening to RE since it first started when Paul got sober. I was interviewed closer to my final sobriety date. Those first eight months of first learning what alcoholism is, not understanding it but trying to get on a healing path are a blur i look back at how clueless i was and not even aware of my own self i was doing what everyone told me to do because i didn't know how to live i've listened to it a few times as the years have passed and honestly i cringe when i hear it because it sounds so ungeneric and unlike me i've been sober for six and a half years i got sober through aa and still use it as my main foundation but it has expanded to include so much more My first year and a half of sobriety, I was in depression and a hopeless mindset that developed into extreme anxiety and panic attacks for four years. The mental tear of my sobriety had been unimaginable, and I really wondered if I could heal and feel peace. All throughout my sobriety, I have been doing treatment for my eating disorder, and I lost my dog of 11 years. I've remained sober through all of this. It's hard because I never had a pink cloud. And I wonder what have I gotten sober for because it has taken me over six years to finally feel balanced and I can move forward toward life goals. This shit is fucking hard. Though I have been sober since I was 32, it has been the most miserable yet awakening years of my life. I wouldn't trade those hard years of sobriety to keep drinking. My story sounds uninspiring, but what I hope people hear is that it is still possible. Mental health played a much louder role in my life than I knew I had but i am not quitting 5 minutes before the miracle happens i'm learning to love myself and find my purpose wow thank you low for your honesty and thank you for the update this one is from tom episode 351 first and foremost i remain sober from drugs and alcohol god willing on 925 i will celebrate 3 years i very much feel like i'm in the groove of sobriety rarely if i ever do i have the brilliant idea to drink or drug My life continues to improve in sobriety. Making connections and friends just keeps getting easier and easier and I continue to love my job. I have an amazing relationship with my kids. I live in beautiful Bozeman, Montana and life is a 12 out of 10, except for one thing. When I got sober, my marriage was on the rocks with little hope of survival. For three years, I've been in marriage counseling and individual counseling with a clear focus on saving my marriage and family life as I know it. Unfortunately, two weeks ago, My wife told me she wants a divorce. I'm in the process of selling my home, dividing our assets, and figuring out a parenting plan moving forward. Navigating all this has been devastating, but I move forward in sobriety knowing everything will be okay. I will be okay. My kids will be okay. Before I got sober, all I could see was the darkness and fear in my future. Today, I realize that I have to walk through a difficult storm, but I see only brightness and hope. In sobriety, I use my recovery as an opportunity for growth and development. I will view my divorce in the same way. I am an active member of AA in Bozeman, and I am and will continue to lean on my friends in recovery for support. I will find a home in Bozeman, my kids and I will thrive, and I will stay sober through it all. Great job, Tom. Thank you for the update. Okay, I got three more here for you. This one is from Greg, episode 147. I have not had a drop of alcohol since October 2016 and I credit a huge part of this accomplishment to recovery elevator. I found the podcast shortly after I quit drinking, I quickly got caught up on all the prior episodes and have listened to every episode ever since. It has become such a part of my weekly routine that I can't imagine not listening. I love the different personalities that Paul Odette and Chris bring to the show. Being on the show really helped me to burn the ships. Anyway, I am 100% on board with your approach that quitting drinking is not about giving up something, but about gaining a life that is deeper, richer, and more meaningful. There was a time when I thought about all the things I would be missing by not drinking, but now I am thankful every day for the joy I've found in a life without alcohol. Yeah, great job, Greg. Thanks for the update. This is Rebecca, episode 387. She says, since my podcast interview, I made it through the hardest summer for a new business because of the flood that happened in Yellowstone at the beginning of the summer. This was this summer, 2022. She says, I've been fighting off grizzly bears every morning. Never have I been so grateful for being sober. I found a grizzly bear in my truck bed at my house and just yesterday morning I had one scratching on the shop. This is real stuff listeners in Montana. She says, I celebrated five years sober. I'm so grateful for your podcast. I couldn't do this every day just for today without Recovery Elevator. Thanks for making my recovery a sweet, positive, supportive journey. All right, Rebecca, I'm sure you got bear spray, but that's my advice. Okay, this last one is from Robin, episode 306. She says, recently I've surpassed day 800 and I'm proud to still be alcohol free. My journey would not have been nearly as successful without stepping way out of my comfort zone and asking to be a guest on the podcast. Since that time, I've been through many things in life that simply would not have been bearable without my RE family and the support I have found within it. I feel like I have grown more in the last two years than in the last 10. I also feel like I'm aging in reverse. I have never felt this good. I no longer think about alcohol in the, oh, I need a drink way. I merely think about it in the thank you for sending me on the path to find my new friends and family type of way. I prefer this way to the old one, 1,000%. And I would love to be a guest again. The podcast and its reach to others mean so much to me. Great job, Robin. Thank you for the interviewees who shared their updates on where they are today. And and thank you to the 400 previous interviewees, those rock stars who courageously shared their story on this podcast for one goal, and that's helping others quit drinking. I think finding purpose around our suffering, our journey, the pains and pings that come with quitting drinking, rechanneling that to helping other people is key. That's one of the fundamentals of, of AA. That's what Bill W found out in a hospital bed in nineteen thirty four. Listeners, after the interview with Jen, we have a musical submission from Alex, so be sure to stick around for the outro. And before we hear from Jen, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, BetterHelp.
2: Life can be overwhelming, and no matter who we are, problems are guaranteed to arise. For me, sometimes when new problems come up, I feel a bit paralyzed. It's important to assess situations and to talk to people I trust when it comes to finding solutions. I've gone from thinking I have to figure it out all on my own to asking for help when it comes to problem-solving mode. There's no better feeling than finding solutions and gaining confidence through problem-solving. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Therapy has always been important to me because I need someone who can catch my blind spots and be clear with me. Someone who can see things that perhaps I'm not catching, and someone that can give me professional feedback without me feeling hurt or judged. We take such good care of our bodies. The mind should be no different. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapist anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash elevator.
0: Jen, how are you?
2: I'm very good. How are you?
0: Yeah, Jen, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to learn more about you and your story. How are you feeling about the interview? Are you ready?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm ready. I always... I'm excited to share my story in the hopes that it will help somebody out there.
0: For sure. I love that thinking. That's why we're here. That's what puts me behind the mic every Monday as well. Well, Jen, let's set the ships ablaze and head out to sea. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Hang on a second. That metaphorically doesn't work. That's a horrible idea. Let's not set the ships on fire and then set out to sail. But you get the point. Rule 22. (laughs) Let's have fun, Jen. Jen, when was your last drink?
1: My last drink was March tenth of two thousand and twenty-two.
0: March tenth of two thousand and twenty-two. Fantastic work. How does that feel?
1: Great. I I feel so relieved that I've been able to put together five months. The obsession and the craving were lifted after um, after that last drink, and I don't I don't know why, Grace, but it hasn't come back yet.
0: That's great to hear, Jen. And listeners, Jen had a chunk of time before this five-month sobriety run. We're going to get into all that. Jen has an incredible story, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. But, Jen, before we even go there, I want you to give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age. Do you have a family? Are you married? But most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Oh, Well, i'll start with where i'm from so i grew up in cleveland ohio and in austin texas my whole family are native texans since i went i went to college in syracuse and since then i've lived on the east coast i lived for 15 years in manhattan that's where i got sober um, the first time and now i am up in connecticut we moved here to raise my kids i have two Wonderful kids. I cannot believe that they're 21 and 23 already. They both went to school in Texas. So now everybody's down in Texas except me. And I just got a new job this week. So I'm happy that you asked. I am going to be a counselor at Pivot Ministries here in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And it is a Christian-based treatment center. It's a nine month program and they have a 90% success rate. So I am really excited about it. I'm actually starting today.
0: Wow. Congratulations on, yeah. on your your new career endeavor and what a good fit, a counselor at a, at a treatment center and the 90% success rate perked my ears right there. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: It's a wonderful program, so it is male only, and a lot of these men grew up on the streets up in Bridgeport. Bridgeport's kind of a rough area, and they show up on Pivot's doorstep really when they've lost everything. The program is $500 for nine months, and that's inpatient. The first three months are spent detox and them getting physically and emotionally kind of back to better health. Then the next three months are counseling, AA, finding a recovery program that works for them. And then the last three months, they try to clean up any wreckage from their past before they graduate. And they also teach them a skill, whether it be moving, you know, different organizations within the community have volunteered, their services, so the men go out. There's a moving company, a landscaping company, a catering company, and I'm sure a few other things um, since I was involved with them last. But it's really a wonderful organization. So by the time they reach the end of the nine months and graduate, they have skills, they're taught a lot of social skills, the wreckage from their past is cleaned up as, as best possible and they've been sober for nine months.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think 30 days is, is too short. And I think some of the costs, I heard something yesterday in Malibu, 30 days for a cool price tag, $112,000. Um, yeah, 500 bucks. I like how you said they show up on the doorstep when they're ready to make a change. Okay, we might we, we might explore that a little later, but let's talk about your story, Jen. When did you have your first drink? What was that like?
1: I had my first drink, I think I was 13. We stole liquor from my parents' liquor cabinet and played quarters and I blacked out. I was sick for three days and um, that was really just kind of a foreboding of what was to come for me. (laughs) I did not have time in my life when alcohol was fun. It was like matches and dynamite for me from, you know, I now know I was an alcoholic from the first time I picked up, you know, I had the allergy. And I went to college and, and started drinking in earnest, and it was I, I was nineteen when I first knew that I was an alcoholic. I was like, "You never go out and just have two drinks anymore. You always go out and get plastered. You always suffer hangovers, and you do it again and again. but I wasn't ready to get sober yet. It, I, you know it hadn't gotten bad enough yet. I kind of pushed it into the back of my mind, but it was always there. Every time I drank, and my drinking progressed from that point. Um, once I graduated, I became a daily drinker. So every time I drank, that you're an alcoholic was on the fringes of my consciousness. I like to say, you know, it was fun until it wasn't fun anymore. It got really unfun really quickly.
0: Real quick, Jen, was it looking back? I think you just said you're 19, maybe sophomore. You're at Syracuse. Looking back, did you realize you were an alcoholic, or you had a problem with drinking, or was it in the moment? And when you were 19, were you drinking, saying, this is out of balance. I'm lapping the pace car. I'm going way bigger than my friends. But like you said, you weren't ready. Unpack that just a little bit more before we continue with your story.
1: I like that lap in the pace car. That's exactly what it was. It was a conscious moment that I had. I remember I was studying abroad and I was laying on my couch in my flat in London after, you know, a night out where, again, I blacked out. And I was like, Wow you know, I I drink to excess every time I drink, I get plastered, I black out, maybe I'm an alcoholic. And then I was like, nah, and I pushed it out of my mind, because I wasn't ready to stop. But it never left entirely. Because from that point on, I was a daily drinker.
0: Gotcha. Real quick, with the lap in the pace car, I want to give credit where credit's due. You know, the gentleman, his name is David L. He's a fantastic guitar player. That's where I got that line from. Okay, yeah. You said it was fun until it wasn't fun. And we, oof, I know I'm shaking my head and I know listeners are out there they, we hit this moment with our drinking where, yes, it's fun. We're social. It's expansive. It's adding value to our life. And then seemingly overnight, it's just not fun. It's 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 reversing, right? It's taking, it's a contracting force in our life. The actual depressant is depressing us. So walk us through that phase with alcohol in your life.
1: So after I gre- in in college it was normal to drink all the time Syracuse is a huge party school so I was able to kind of cover it up that it was such a problem for me but it it was getting noticed by my friends when I graduated everybody got jobs and curtailed their drinking and I got a job and would come home every night and drink until I fell asleep so it became a secret then then I knew the gig was up I knew I had a problem But I just wasn't ready to do anything about it.
0: And this is at like age 23, 24?
1: No, no, this is younger than that. So I graduated from college at 21. Okay. And moved to New York City. And the summer after I graduated from college, I was drinking every day, drinking until I blacked out every day. And once I moved into the city, which was that fall, got a job and all my friends did, um, you know, they would go out on the weekends but they weren't going out during the week. And I found that I still had to. I never went out, I I drank alone in my apartment because I knew that I didn't drink like other people and I was very ashamed of it. So I would just stop by, whether it was a wine store, a liquor store, a bodega, pick up what I was gonna drink for that night and sit in my apartment.
0: Gotcha, so Jen, you're 21, 22 years old, right out of college after Syracuse. And real quick, you you did mention it's easier to hide it in college. I think our four-year public institutions of higher ed are yeah. hot pot beds for breeding alcoholism, and it's totally accepted. Uh, yeah, I remember being the guy who ran beer pong tournaments on a Thursday night. Um, <laughs> totally fine. Well, you know, the whole school knew about it, and a lot of people came. But okay, so 21, 22, you're 52 now. Did you just ride this thing till about five months ago, or was there a period of time maybe in 1996, let's say January 17th, where you decided to make make a change?
1: Yes, so I had, the consequences of my drinking had been getting worse and worse. I was passing out on the subway, on Lexington Avenue in the city, it was getting dangerous. This uh, January 16th, I had been visiting my parents in Chicago and my flight was delayed going home. I remember starting to drink at O'Hare That's the last thing I remember until I woke up in my bed on the Upper East Side of Manhattan the next morning. I have no recollection of the flight, no recollection of how I got from LaGuardia to my apartment. And I woke up that morning in tears. I was terrified. I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. And by that afternoon, I picked up the yellow pages. I date myself. You know, it was really before everybody had a cell phone and I opened it to the first page, and it was the AA intergroup phone number. I picked it up, called, and there was a wonderful guy on the end of the line with this southern accent, and he's like, sweetie, are you still drinking? And yes. He's like, put a plug in the jug and get to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And there had to be a meeting that night at 7.30 right across the street from wow. my apartment. Wonderful thing about Manhattan, their meetings, you know. Everywhere. So I walked into that meeting. I was terrified I stood out and watched people go in to like see what they look like I forced myself to go in you know when the pain of doing the same thing is greater than the fear of change you do it so I just pushed myself into this meeting got my hand up and said I was new and sat down next to the woman that was to be my sponsor for the next 10 years Wow. that group became my home group. Like, talk about being taken care of. It was basically a young people's meeting. There were about 150 people there. It it had so much fellowship, so much connection. I was just swept up in the magic that comes when, you know, we're finally honest and we reach out for help. It, it Just all the help was there for me. It, it was an amazing experience. It took a few weeks before... I felt like, okay, maybe I have a shot at this thing. But I know even the next day when I woke up without like a bone crushing hangover, you know, those like first three seconds when you wake up and you're so sick, your mouth is so dry, you try to remember what happened the night before, you look around your apartment to see what's askew. And um, it was so nice not to wake up like that, that I literally, if my sponsor stopped walking, I would bump into her. I just stuck super close. I did exactly what she told me to do. And the women of AA just really surrounded me and carried me for that those first 90 days.
0: Wow. First off, thank you for the visceral description of those hangovers. It's been a while since I've had one, but I was like, yes, I remember that. Oh. My mouth stuck together. And I was like, <gasps> the body was gasping for air. Ooh. So... <laughs> Uh, Yeah, th- th- those are, those are rough. Before we hit record listeners, um, she mentioned she had 18 years away from alcohol from 1996. Um, uh, I don't think my math is correct here, but to 2022, yeah. that's a little bit more than 18, 18 years. But talk to us about, talk to us about how AA was, was vital in your recovery to launch those first 10 years or, or 18 years. You mentioned 10 years with your sponsor. And then, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. And what happened after 18 years? What led you back to taking a drink?
1: So the, the magic of AA is the connection that you get in the meetings. It normalized alcoholism for me. I realized that this was, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't a bad person. I was a sick person. And I had an allergy to alcohol that manifested itself in a mental obsession to keep drinking and keep feeding a physical allergy of the body it's my belief and i know um it's in a lot of medical journal stuff that alcohol affects alcoholics differently when i take a drink it's like somebody turns on the lights i just want to go it's like energy there i you know i feel like i want to do things and go places it's the, it was the only time that i felt okay before i got sober so when i got into aa you know i, I had to realize that every day i was going to wake up in my life an untreated alcoholic this, you know, once you cross that line into alcoholism, you never go back. So my sponsor taught me that when I wake up in the morning, what was I going to do to treat my untreated alcoholism that day? So I eventually started planning and scheduling my days around my meetings, not vice versa, making meetings a priority. I went to the same meetings on the same days so that the people in the group got to know me and I got to know the people in the group. So there was some accountability. You know, Manhattan's a super big place. It's really easy to get lost. And I didn't know a soul, you know, when I when I went there. So all the friends that I had were sober. I was fortunate at that point. It wasn't like I was leaving a life that I had already set up. You know, I was like brand spanking new to Manhattan. And all of a sudden, AA afforded me. Um, a sober social life. And that was really important to me in my twenties because my friends from college were, you know, they were all going out, they were still drinking, they were doing this, doing that. And I could go with them and not drink, but there there was a lack there, like a lack of connection. Like I started to not have as much in common with them anymore. The funny stories weren't so funny, you know, about drinking to me because I paid a really high price. So we did share houses out in the Hamptons. We did ski houses, you know, as a sober community, there'd be a a guy's house and a girl's house. I got married soon thereafter, but it was like Melrose place, you know, and everybody was dating everybody else because everybody was 20 something. So it was really fun. It gave me a life, you know, much like recovery elevator and the Bozeman trip, like that kind of connection um, that felt so normal to me because that's the kind of connection that I grew up with in AA.
0: Jen, there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, I heard allergy to alcohol, right? There's, there's a couple of thinkings or a couple camps on of what this addiction thing is. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because here we are right now. And it's kind of a fool's errand to actually place what it is. But I was listening to the Andrew, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman podcast. He has a great episode about what alcohol does to the body. I'm doing a recap on it. And um, I actually sent an interview request to him. But yeah, some of it, it is genetic. There's almost an allergy to it. Um, and, and there's the Dr. Mate camp where it's a uh, it's a trauma response and it's all, there is no genetic, but it doesn't really matter if it's an allergy or if it's a trauma response, it doesn't really matter. Here we are today. Right. And so, and I also appreciate a ton of uh, the, the different perspectives on alcoholism. I, I like what you said. Well, at first there was a time in my life where I wouldn't like what you said, but once you're an alcoholic, you said you never go back. Right. And, and I do agree with that. It's kind of disheartening to hear at first, but where I'm at right now is Do I want to go back into that room? Do I want to go back to the bars at 10 a.m. or ten? sometimes at 10 a.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., midnight, closing that down? Do I want to go back to those environments where I need an external substance called alcohol to be whole? And I don't. I don't want to go back. This is the pathway. This is the journey, right? And then I loved how you said planning your day around recovery. Listeners, unpack that for a second. If drinking and quitting drinking is the most important thing in your life, your sobriety, which you're going to hear this a lot in the recovery world, you have to put your sobriety numero uno, as Odette would say, above everything else. Jen, you planned your day around recovery. That's how it should be. And listeners, I know AA is not your jam for everybody, but I highly encourage you to go. I went to a meeting last night. I go to about one to four meetings a month. I don't have a sponsor. I don't work the steps on a daily basis, shall I say. And that's okay. That's that's where I'm at right now. in My program. There was a time where I did have a sponsor. I did work the steps with that sponsor on a daily basis. But look at AA as community. It felt so good last night. I went to a meeting uh, Tuesday night at 8 p.m. About eight, uh, probably about 12 people there. It Just felt good to be there to talk about stuff. So that's the that's the magical part about AA. Um, okay, Jen, walk us after you know after that 10 years or whatnot. I, um, yeah, what happened after that?
1: So after 10 years, my father passed away. The same month that my husband and I decided to move our family to the suburbs um, to raise my kids. Both of my kids were going into kindergarten. So we moved up to Westport, Connecticut where I raised my family. I knew no one. I left this wonderful community that I had, this wonderful sober community that I had in Manhattan. and. I stopped. Eventually, I stopped going to meetings. You know, I bitch on the phone with my sponsor from New York that the meetings are not the same as they were in Manhattan. I don't like them, blah, blah, blah. And she facetiously said, why don't you go out? And try drinking, and then I think you'll like the meetings just fine. And sure enough, um, that's what happened. After about a year of living in the suburbs without going to meetings, a friend of mine showed up at my door the night before Thanksgiving. You know, she had no idea that I didn't drink. She was a new friend from the suburbs, and um, she had a bottle of wine from her wine cellar and like two sparkly glasses. It didn't look anything like my alcoholism looked before, and You know, my mind told me, hey, you're not paying your rent in quarters anymore. You're a mother. You're a wife, a homeowner. Maybe it wasn't that bad. And And Jen,
0: this was after 18 years since your last drink.
1: This was after 10 years. So I had 10 years and then I had eight years. So I relapsed in the middle. So I've had two major relapses and I count a relapse as the first drink that I took after a long period of sobriety. Not the thousands that I took.
0: (laughs) I agree with that.
1: And I took the my second
0: th- one that gets us in trouble. it's always the first
1: i I said um when we were sharing out in Bozeman, if that first drink had a price tag attached to it, it would be an encyclopedia,
0: mm, yeah,
1: emotional, I mean so much pain yeah. that that one little glass of wine from this girl's wine cellar you know looked so innocent and fancy, and um my alcoholism came right back. So I finished that bottle of wine with her. At the time, we kept alcohol in the house because I had been sober 10 years and um, it didn't bother me. Went, drank all the alcohol we have in the house. I, I don't remember most of the night. I remember my husband waking me up in the morning. It was Thanksgiving. And he we were supposed to do a run together with the kids. He took the kids, did the run. I was so sick, I couldn't go to Thanksgiving. He took the kids to Thanksgiving. And I told myself, you know, they say in AA, um, if you relapse, you might not make it back. And I always thought that was stupid. I was like, what do you mean? It's like a left and a right out of my house, the A clubhouse, you know, in town. So I went to a meeting that day, got my hand up, said I had one day, but the obsession was in full swing in my mm-hmm. mind. It took seven years for me to get sober again. I got sober again on August 12th, 2014, three treatment centers, I almost had my kids taken away. It did so much damage yeah. to my, so much damage. Um, fortunately, my kids were 11 and 13. When I got sober that time, you know, being in this small Connecticut town, I kind of exploded in full view of everybody with my alcoholism. And when you disappear for 30 days, three times, everybody knows what's sure. up. Therapist at the time said, you know, you can go back, you can remain anonymous but you know, everybody's going to know that you're, you know, that you're not telling the truth, or you can go back with your head held high that you're a woman in recovery. And that's what I did. It was not easy. I was terrified. The first 10 years I was sober. There was such a stigma. I had so much shame. I didn't tell anybody. The only people that knew were my family and my husband. But this time, I had other things to think about i had these two kids you know that were in the gossip circles you know of the mommies and they were influenced by that their friends and whatnot so i chose to go through it as a woman in recovery i didn't i didn't you know shout out hey i'm an alcoholic in recovery but when somebody asked me i was honest with them and that eliminated the shame i never thought it would become a positive thing I was mortified, you know, at first, but as I walked through it, you know, just with trust, I had to just trust that the people I surrounded myself knew more than I did. And I listened to them instead of listening to myself and, um, in not keeping it a secret anymore, it took the shame away Mm. and it wound up becoming something that to this day, I'm I'm so proud of it's. It's one of my favorite parts of myself, that I had the courage to face this disease, you know. And as hard as it was going to treatment three times and going through those seven years, you know, and trying and failing, I I, I just refused to give up. I refused to give up. And um, you know, they say you have to do it for yourself. Now I do it for myself. I think at first though. I did it for the people that I love who were so affected by my disease, the collateral damage for this disease. It's the only disease that hurts everybody that you love.
0: Yeah. Wow. Jen, that's 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 remarkable. I love what you said earlier. And another way to phrase this is you're owning your story. You're not a victim. But when somebody asked you about what's going on, you were honest right? And you said that almost dissolved the shame, dissolved the stigma. Unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Sure. I think, you know, I I heard this, be kind, everybody is fighting a tough battle, Mm -hmm. you know, very affluent area. Everybody wants to look good. But you know, but people have stuff going on in their lives. We're real people. And once I got sober, and everybody saw that, like, I wasn't perfect. And I was okay with that. You know, I was okay being honest with that. I had so many people, some of the women that were the cruelest to me when I was drinking, I had them show up on my doorstep asking for help for their brother, help for mm. their help for themselves. I had one woman, this really sticks out, um, show up on my doorstep at six o'clock in the morning sobbing. And this woman was horrible to me mm. when I read, Horrible. And um And she came to my door and she was like, every day I think about committing suicide.
0: Wow.
1: And I was able to, you know, to be part of the solution and to help these people. And it gave me a tremendous sense of purpose, a tremendous, tremendous sense of, you know, I'm on, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I was given this gift of sobriety. Why I made it you know, now three times, then it was twice, why I was able to get sober twice in one life when so many people never get sober once. I don't know. But I knew in those days that I I was not going to sit on the sidelines while other people suffered. If they showed up for me and reached out their hand, I was going to be the hand of recovery that met them without judgment. And um, it put my life on a completely different trajectory.
0: Yeah, I think that's a Plato quote, one of his famous lines about be kind to everybody because everyone is fighting their own individual battle and you don't know what it is. And number two, there's a, there's a line I heard that you know if you're struggling, suffering with alcoholism or this disease or whatever you want to call it, it's 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 that experience is going to help so many other people. As we just heard a great example of that, at, I think it was 6 a.m., somebody came to your doorstep crying, uh, telling you whether to think about ending their life daily. So opening up about this, burning the ship's. It's an invitation for somebody else to do the same, and rarely have I opened up about this, um, told somebody else, been honest about it, and the response is an almost reciprocal. I've told told people, and they're like, you know what, Paul? I've struggled with intense depression for blah, blah, blah. You know what, Paul, my brother? It's, It's an invitation for somebody else to be authentic, honest, altruistic, which then creates community. So burning the ships, accountability, inevitably creates community on this path. So Jen, let's talk about five months ago, um, you mentioned you got sober twice, but this would be the third time. What happened? Um, you know, to you drank five months ago or whatnot, or maybe it's before that. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that that period of time.
1: So four years ago, next month, I I was sober for eight years at the time. I had this big, beautiful life. You know, my kids were graduating from high school, off to college. Um, everything was great. And my husband went mountain biking September 9th, 2018, and had a massive heart attack. He died in three minutes.
0: Oh, I'm sorry.
1: He had no prior heart disease, nothing. It was a total shock. He was a triathlete. He was in, it's so vibrant. You know, we were married for 25 years. And, um, at the time my life was going so well and I was so busy with my children that I kind of let up. On on my meetings, and um, you know I'm the kind of alcoholic that I need to treat it every day. I can't take recovery a la carte. I now know, so I let up on my meetings. And then when life on life's terms hit me, it took nine months after Eric died. But it took nine months. But I I stopped going to meetings. I was so depressed, terrified. I, I became agoraphobic that I was going to die too, and my kids, you know, just weird irrational fears, and. Um, after nine months of not going to meetings you know and i always say when i speak i didn't drink because eric died you know the same month my kids both left for college it was like everybody left at once i drank because i'm an alcoholic that stopped mm. treating me and um so after nine months it was a it was a conscious decision um pardon my language but i woke up one morning and i was like "Fuck this shit!" i did everything i was supposed to do and look what happened so i started yeah. feeling swirl in the drain of self-pity, put a bottle of tequila in my bag, behind my pillow, whatever, got a bottle of stimulants, Vyvanse. Um, And when I woke up in the morning, you know, I had to function because I had these two kids that were grieving. And um, the only way I could function was I take three gulps of tequila out of the bottle pop a couple vivants, wait 20 minutes, brush my teeth, and then throughout the day I would just be a chemist. If I was too drunk, I'd take more vivands. If I was too high, I'd drink more. And um and that went on for only two months because my AA friends noticed that I was that I was not there. So in August, so that was in June. Of 2019 in August of 2019 I get a knock at my front door my friends open the door it's this couple that I'm very good friends with um they've been sober over 20 years and they yell up Jen we're taking you to rehab Allison's coming up to your ba- coming up to pack your bag I'm doing your intake and that's exactly what they did they took me over to their house that night I slept over they flew me all the way to Arizona and wow. dropped me up the next morning and, um, you know, sadly, that wasn't my my sobriety date, but that was the start of um, of me trying to get better. I, I think it's really important to remember that this is a terminal disease. You know, it ends jails, institutions and death. And my disease had been progressing even when I wasn't drinking. You know, they, they tell you that all the time. It's true. I can tell you it's true because I picked up my disease became round the clock drinking I would have to wake up at night to drink because I'd be shaking. Um, I became physically dependent on alcohol for the first time in my life um, you know during those months and um, when i when I went to treatment you know and subsequently got out of treatment and relapsed again, I wanted to stop drinking Paul and I couldn't mm. i the power of choice. And it, it talks about that, you know, we talk about that in our meetings, and I'd never experienced it. But I'd be sitting there drinking, wanting to stop with every fiber in my being. And that was terrifying, terrifying. Yeah. You know, I had this whole head full of recovery, and I couldn't connect it to my heart, the physical, addiction was so strong. And I felt so bad when my blood alcohol level would go below a certain point that I was stuck in the cycle. And um, I went to four different treatment centers in in the past four years since Eric died. And three of them I drank on my way home.
0: Uh
1: Yeah, I don't know why the last drink I had was the last drink. Um, I was, I had planned a trip with my kids out to Sun Valley. And mind you, these are two kids that, you know, had just left for college when their dad died. They've been going through it. And here they have this mom that's really struggling, you know, and I I was honest. My kids knew I was sober. You know, I was very honest with them that I was struggling, but this landed in their laps because I was the only adult in the room and they had no, no leader, right. For Mm -hmm. their family, they're trying to figure all this stuff out. And um, they were 17 and 19 when Eric died. And uh, it was just super hard for them. So we were all out in Sun Valley five months ago. And I was sober for six months. I got to the airport and I'm walking to the plane. And why in that moment, the idea went through my head. I'm just going to have two. I, You know, I never think I'm going to have one of anything because I know myself, I always joke, I've never had one of anything, no, not one dog, not one horse, nothing. Um, so I had a couple of tequila shots, got on the plane, the physical allergy, the mental obsession had started, drank all the way out there on the plane. When I got there, usually I call ahead if I'm on vacation and I have them lock the minibar, clear it. It didn't even occur to me because they were staying in a house, so I had rented a house. And it was docked
0: oh yeah
1: right so you know i i at this time i was drinking about a bottle of tequila a day so i drank two bottles of tequila the tequila ran out i got a bottle of vodka and and then i you know the stimulants came back into my life and and, um i was stealing them from my son Mm because i was sober. you know prior to drinking at the airport i didn't have anything on me my son had them so yeah i'm you know i don't i don't have any shame over it anymore but like i'm the kind of mom that steals drugs from her kids you know when i drink that's what and i
0: owns like. it on a podcast
1: yeah right on you know really really proud of that you know when i'm sober i'm the best mom when i'm drunk it's like all bets are off the only thing i love is alcohol i just am obsessed and um so my son came in saw the bottle of vodka and You know, he's a big kid. He was a linebacker on the football team. I mean, he's just a wonderful kid. And here's this big kind of like young man through his tears telling me, like, what are you doing, mom? If something happens to you, Donovan, my my daughter, Donovan and I are going to be orphans. Like, Mm -hmm. get that. And, you know, it came across as anger, but I could see it as so much fear. My kids were terrified. Yeah. You know, it was way over their pay grade. So um I reached out to a good friend in AA. She flew out to Sun Valley. She helped my kids get packed up. She helped pack up the house. She helped pack me up. I had to drink as we went back home, you know, because of the, the physical thing. I, I had to go to detox to make sure I was physically stable. I slept at her house for five days when we got here around the clock. And um And she said, you know what? I don't think you need treatment. You you know what treatment's going to teach you. You need to start working a program. So I just jumped back in with my community, my recovery community here. And um, now I really know. Like, I came face to face with the terminal Mm -hmm. part. I'm a low bottom now. And, you know, it's like, what am I going to do to treat this terminal disease? That I can, you know, put into full remission and lead a wonderful healthy life if I just take the steps I have to take every day to stay sober. And um and that's what I do. I don't mess around with it. Like I do something, whether it's a meeting, getting together with friends, going out to, you know, Bozeman, like didn't know a soul, jumped in with both feet. I do something for my recovery every day. I plan it in the morning, plan my day around it. I stay connected. I do my best to be honest. You know, the wonderful thing for me about the steps um, and working the steps is it taught me how to be a sober human being. I had no life skills. I was such a a, like a natural liar. I lied when I didn't even have to lie. And um, it made my life so unmanageable, that kind of behavior that I had to find a way to change It and that's a tall order, you know, changing the way that you've kind of operated for many years. And um, the steps gave me a like a a roadmap to figure out like what wasn't working, you know, like people get afraid of doing the fourth step and doing a fearless moral inventory. But the way I looked at it, you know, because I didn't want to die, the way I looked at it is I get to find out what's broken. And then in step six and seven, I get to fix it one day at a time like mm. i wake up the morning and ask to be relieved of my dishonesty has to be relieved of my fear you know my judgment my lack of tolerance whatever it is my lack of patience you know like i'm such a crazy dr- you know just to to become a different person because if nothing changes paul nothing changes if i don't change that same person is going to drink again mm-hmm. because it's so uncomfortable to be in my body the way that i was used to operating an alcoholic in the world i could i didn't have a shot so you know that's just personal to me you know and and the spiritual experience like people i think tend to get a little hung up sometimes in the god part of the program but you know it like you're you seek to have a vital spiritual experience to shift shift yourself from an alcoholic to an alcoholic in recovery and all the spiritual experiences is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism that's all it is hmm. it doesn't mean you have to harry krishna it doesn't mean you have to you know join a religion or anything like that and um, i found a tremendous amount of peace knowing that i wasn't running the show anymore you know i was turning it over so that i could learn to live differently
0: Jen, I can, I can tell you right now you are on the hero's journey and <laughs> these interviews are so inspirational and they're so helpful to me as well. So thank you for putting it all out there, being honest and owning it. Um, that's a huge part of it. If You, you can't be a victim and quit drinking. You got to own it and, yeah. and and you're an embodiment of that. Now, before we hit the rapid fire round, I want to ask your experience, uh, about Bozeman. Uh, we had the pleasure of meeting in person just a couple of weeks ago at our event in August. Um, Uh, take a minute and and share what was that like for you because it's it's not aa based there are people who also do aa but uh uh, yeah how was bozeman for you it
1: was wonderful you know there was a sense of um playfulness singing songs together in the morning and you know going on heights and
0: country road take me home
1: (laughs) for those songs now you know i go right back to bozeman It was um, it just reminded me that when I'm in a group of um, recovering alcoholics, I'm home, no matter where that group is. Uh, It was the first thing I've done that's not AA based, Um, you know, in all the years that I've been in AA, i I've done a lot of retreats, 12 steps, this, that and the other thing. And um, so I really kind of, you know, took a chance going out there. I wanted to see what it was all about. I wanted to learn about what sober curious was you know my path was just very different because i got sober in such a different time you know we didn't have zoom we didn't have all these things and i think what i really saw out there that that i loved i saw the connection but i also saw people that got off the elevator at a higher floor than i Mm -hmm. had to go you know and and a lot of them hadn't had really severe consequences yet in their life and they and they were choosing to live a sober life. And I just found that so encouraging. You know, when I was out there, I I loved that there are things that are being offered to people that are um, just kind of coming to terms with alcohol maybe being a problem in their lives. Um, that was great. I love the small groups, you know, and, and really getting to know everybody, but I loved getting out of my comfort zone, right? There's nothing outdoorsy about me. Like I'm a New York City girl all day long. This was the first time I tried to hike and I didn't go in the water. I have a little fear of water, but I'm working on it. You know, and I was like zero to hero, right? Because this life I have now is, is a gift. Like I really appreciate every day. And I try to do things that, you know, I've not done before because who knows, you know, it could be something that was super great. And I had a blast. I loved seeing the buffaloes. Um, Montana was just incredibly peaceful and beautiful. You know, and, and I got to be a part of this wonderful organization, you know, for those four days. It w- it was really wonderful.
0: Yeah, we were so lucky to have you, your experience and your sobriety at the event. Uh, Jen, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you have any questions within 10 to 15 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. Jen, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking?
1: I can change.
0: Perfect. Number two, what's the best sober moment you've had?
1: It would have to be when I dropped my kids off at college, you know, and they knew I was a sober mom and I was totally there for them a hundred percent. And, um, it was just such a proud moment.
0: Okay. Jen, what's your favorite alcohol-free drink?
1: Cranberry and seltzer with a lime.
0: Yeah, that's what's up. That's, that's my favorite. Um, we're trying to do a collaboration with, uh, with an AF drink company. And that's on the top of my list. That's what the drinks gonna be. So fingers crossed, Jen. Um, we'll cheers one together if that happens. Next question, here's a light one. What's the point of life? Love. Easy breezy, like it. What's your favorite 80s or 90s band? Def Leppard. Ah, I love it. All right, <laughs> what is, what's that?
1: My Cleveland roots coming out.
0: There we go. What has recovery made possible for you?
1: It has given me a bread in life. A, a brand new way to live my life
0: there we go Jen if you had a pet turtle what would you name it
1: chrysanthemum
0: that's easy me too what's your favorite pizza topping onions oh, okay <laughs> and Jen what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners
1: to make recovery the focal point of your day and plan the rest of your life around it
0: and before we depart Jen give listeners your own customized you might need to ditch the booze if line
1: Mm. If you can't, if you don't want to, <laughs> you know, if, if you're experiencing consequences.
0: Yeah, there we go. That's a good one.
1: Alcoholic, don't think they're alcoholic. Like if you're thinking it,
0: it's probably true. There we go. It's a huge value bomb to wrap this interview up. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Again, you're on a hero's journey. Keep it up. Hope to see you again in person. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. It was great to see you again. I appreciate the opportunity to speak.
0: Yeah, Thank you. Listeners. It's been a fantastic episode. It was a long one. So I'm going to keep the outro short on next week's intro. I'm going to cover what you can expect when you quit drinking more internally. That's going to be a fun one. All right, recovery elevator. Remember rule 22 lighten up. Never take yourself too seriously on this journey. And thank you again, Alex, for the musical submission. I hope you guys enjoy.